Um, my name is Simon. I don't know if Taylor mentioned that. Um, I'm, I'm the pastor at Grace City. And uh, it's good to be with you guys again this morning. Uh, thank you for being here. As we always say, uh, guys, you could be any place virtually speaking on a Sunday morning, but you're here. Really, really glad you're here. I hope that um, you find this to be a safe setting, someplace where you can simply be yourself uh, with no expectations put on you. Um, okay, we don't assume that everyone is on the same page. Everyone here is religious. We're all just kind of into the Jesus thing. Uh, I am. No apologies there. But we want to invite you to, to go on a bit of a journey with us, as, as us Christians so often like to say. Go on the journey. Um, but go at your own pace. Ask your questions. Voice your objections. Be you. And, um, but let's, let's do it together. Because that's how we grow. That's how we explore and, and, and figure things out. We, we do it together. We do it in the context of community. At least if you're interested in Jesus, that's how we roll. Um, we have been working through a series that we've entitled Unlikely Church. And it's a study through the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, if you're familiar at all with the Bible, you know that there are two letters in the New Testament that were written by one of the early church leaders known as the Apostle Paul, written to one of the early churches that he himself had a, had a part in starting in the ancient city of Corinth. That would be in Greece. This church is arguably one of the least, one of the least likely churches to survive the first century. There was a lot of pressures at work um, from within and without that made it rather incredible that this church uh, not only survived but thrived and, and really became what God intended them to become. And so really it's a letter that I think encapsulates God's faithfulness. And we've been studying through and seeing how God's faithfulness applies just, to, just as much to us as it did them. Um, but before we get into that, we're going to go uh, to 1 Corinthians 7 this morning. But I wanted to, to just back up real quick. Last week, we had a guest speaker. Um, I was so, so grateful to have Dave Scriven come and be with us. Um, it's just such a, an honor anytime we can have a guest speaker with us. But he touched on a very, very sensitive subject um, to do with sexuality, um, specifically sexual addiction um, and pornography. And uh, it, was, it, was a, it was an intense lecture. And I, after some reflection, some prayer, and some feedback, I felt quite strongly that a few things needed to be said in order to really supplement some of the, some of the things that Dave highlighted. Um, one of our leaders, in fact, who was feeding back to, to a few of us earlier this week made the comment that the talk was a bit um, one-dimensional. Um, there's so much that could be said. Obviously, you can't say everything about everything on any given Sunday, but I think given the, the, the sensitivity of this particular subject that we covered last week, sexuality, there are a few things that I want to say um, just before we, we move on to our next chapter of 1 Corinthians. Um, I actually want to just read this to you guys because um, I want to make sure that what needs to be said is said just right. Um, so in light of last week, number one, regarding sexual addiction, specifically pornography, the emotional toll on both the addict and their spouse, potentially, is absolutely devastating. In some ways, it is arguably on par with the same overwhelming distress that one would experience in the case of marital unfaithfulness itself. Therefore, it is totally inappropriate to caricaturize or in any way belittle the extreme emotional reaction that anyone, man or woman, would have should they ever discover that their spouse has been secretly using porn. Number two, although it's undeniable that both men and women struggle with various forms of sexual addiction, it must be acknowledged that women have been and are the primary victims within the vast majority of the various commercial sex industries. Although everyone, all of society, is suffering in the wake of the modern porn industry, 
It is a statistical fact that women have been abused, objectified, manipulated, and generally in every way victimized more than anyone else involved. Therefore, in any conversation or lecture pertaining to the effects of pornography, women and their dignity need to be regarded with the utmost sensitivity and respect at all times. And lastly, sexual addiction and unhealthy sexual behavior of all kinds are truly a dark and devastating part of the world we live in. Its effects erode society, exploit the vulnerable, and make objects out of people that some might otherwise call loved ones. However, its effects also pale in comparison to the hope of freedom and sexual wholeness that we have available to us in Jesus Christ. We want to speak openly and honestly about the awful reality of our sin, especially when it involves our bodies and sexuality. But as Christians, the conversation must not ever end there because there is no sin too great or too shameful that Jesus cannot or rather did not already pay the price for with his own body through the sacrifice that he made on the cross. Do we avoid talking about sexual sin? No, because Jesus didn't either. But nor does Jesus lead us to the cross to repentance only to leave us there feeling disgusted with ourselves and crushed under the weight of our shame and our sin. No. At the cross, we die to ourselves like Jesus so that in Jesus we might experience new life with Jesus now and forevermore. So for us, the conversation always ends in hope because Jesus is alive. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you that in you we truly do have hope. And just as you gave your body as a sacrifice for our sin, conquered death, coming back to life, you offer us hope like none other. Father, I pray that as we, even today, continue to talk about the significance of our, our sexuality, our desire for intimacy, and all of these things, Lord, that you would help us. Father, I pray that my, my words would communicate your heart, that your love would resound in everything that's said and done here today, because we are your children. We love you. We trust you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, if you have any questions about that, I want to continue the conversation a bit. Um, you can grab me by all means. I can give you a copy of that if you want. Um, Probably the best way, though, I think, to, to continue any of these conversations is in our, our small groups, our ecclesias, our, uh, our home groups, if you will. And I could not really encourage you enough to, to get plugged into that, to, uh, to, to continue the conversation in that context. It's extremely helpful. You guys with me? All right. First uh, Corinthians chapter 7. Let's go there. We're calling this week's installment, what is this, part eight, Principles for Marriage and Life. We're going to go chapter seven, verses one through about five. Um, we'll, see, we'll see how far we get from there. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, quote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, close quote. But, this is Paul's response, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights 
and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Let's stop there. It's probably pretty obvious, given that I've highlighted it in green, but because, because of Greek grammar, ancient Greek grammar, you know, they didn't actually use punctuation. Like, if you've ever taken a course in reading ancient uh, Greek, Koine Greek, it's, it's really difficult to decipher uh, because there is no punctuality and the order of the words is completely irrelevant. I took one Greek course. It was hard. But translators, um, at least um, in this ESV translation, have interpreted the statement, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, uh, to mean the assertion made by the church in Corinth. They've written to the Apostle Paul, there's a number of internal disputes going on among the believers, among Christians in Corinth, And they want Paul, their spiritual father, the one who helped start the church, to weigh in on some of these uh, debates that they're having uh, to do with with various things, such as uh, marriage and sexual relations. So Paul's quoting back to them the matter about which they wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And essentially Paul responds by saying, false. In fact, because of the temptation to sexual immorality. Each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. I think it's worth saying that the Corinthians and certainly our interest in sexuality, desire for sex, is, it's an undeniable indication. I think it's proof that we have been hardwired for intimacy. We want it. We have to have it. We crave it. We'll die without it. Our desire and interest in sex is a reminder that we are relational creatures. We long for intimacy. Mind, body, and soul. Because sex isn't just about sex. We know that, right? Whether you've done it or not. Sex is not just about getting physical with someone. It's about intimacy. This is why we're arguably such sexual beings. Sex is about our desire to be close and to be known, which means our sexual um, dysfunction, challenges, issues, is an indication of how how we really need to be restored. Our confusion, our destructive behavior, our fear, our undying need to control, among other things, are a reminder of how desperately we need to be set free, to be healed, redeemed, saved, restored. So here we have Paul responding to an assertion made by uh, Christians, Corinthians, Greek-thinking believers. Now, the implication, the fact that they're, they're asking Paul to weigh in on this um, would, would lead us to understand that there is a debate going on. So this is the assertion, but obviously there's another side to it. There's other Corinthians who are insisting that actually, um, well, no, it's, it's perfectly natural and fine to have sexual relations with other people. In fact, we have an epic temple at the top of the hill, a shrine that's been uh, erected to the glory of Aphrodite. And the whole, the whole way we worship is to go up there and, and hire a temple prostitute. And this is, this is natural. This is spiritual. This is just people fulfilling their normal desires 
And so there's this debate going on. Well, well what is it? What, how are we meant to understand our desire for sex? And more generally speaking, just our sexuality. And so there's this, there seems to be this sort of conflict going on. Now, I want to I take a minute to highlight the contrast that we're getting a glimpse into here. On one hand, let's go left and right. Let's say over on the right, we have those who would argue that no, it is not good for a man to have sex with a woman. And by the way, many commentators, Greek scholars, would actually argue that because of the situation in Corinth, the rampant prostitution, the, the sexual dysfunction, and and bad sexual behavior, that there would have been Christian women who are actually withholding sex from their husbands and calling it spiritual, calling it Christian and good. And so we had some, some there were some significant problems going on in the church. That, that would be a problem in my marriage, I think, actually. So on one side, you have those who are arguing for radical and total abstinence, even within marriage. We'll call, this, um, we'll call this asceticism. That's right, yeah? Can you even read that? No. Let's try with the white chalk. I just love the chalkboard, so just, even if it's just for me. This is actually a word that comes up elsewhere in Scripture. I'm getting all these looks like, just, just give up. Chalkboard's not working. That's so disappointing. On one side, we have those who I think would fit into the category of what we would call asceticism. On the other side, on the left, we would say is libertarianism. Not the political philosophy, but spiritual libertarianism. If you've taken the transformations course which, by the way, we'll be running again. It's like our biblical foundations course um, that we run as a church. We'll do it again in February. Uh, you might recognize these two categories as um, what rebellion and religion or suppression and, uh, or suppression here, suppressing your desires versus um, simply indulging them. There's two opposite ends of the spectrum. Now, for those that might want to camp in this category, they, they would be those who would probably quote from the book of Galatians, where Paul writes elsewhere, and, and he says that there are those who belong to Christ who have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Or, for example, in Romans 13, he would say, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Over here, you would, have, um, you would have the libertarianisms, the libert, these guys. <laughs> and they would probably want to quote from uh, also Romans 7, 6, that we are released from the law, that having died to which held us captive, so that we may serve in the new way of the spirit not in the old way of the written code. We're no longer obligated to live out the moral code. We have been set free. It's all about grace, baby. Another way to think of this would be grace plus versus cheap grace. Those who would argue, yeah, it's obviously by grace that we're saved. Salvation is a gift, God loves us. Jesus died for us. So we've been set free by grace, but there's some strings attached. There's some rules that you've got to apply. Otherwise, you will, you will default on the gift, on grace. Those on the other end of the spectrum would say, well, look, it's all about grace. There's nothing to be added there's nothing uh, that I have to do. Morality is for legalists. It's for those religious folk. I've been set free in Christ. And so we would call that cheap grace. Grace that is in, in effect not really accomplishing the purpose in which we've been given it. 
Grace is meant to transform us, to set us free, that we might become who God has saved us for. So, you know what we call this sort of spectrum? You know what this, there's this, these two opposite ends here, these two extremes actually fall under a larger category that we see all throughout the New Testament. It's called Gnosticism. Have you heard of this word? Gnosticism is a Greek mindset that basically says that the body is bad. The material is pointless. Anything temporal or non-spiritual is evil. This is actually a very Greek way to think. Corinthians, of course, were Greek. This, this is Plato 101. It finds its way into Christianity and, and heresy known as Gnosticism. Gnosticism comes from the word gnosis, which simply means knowledge, the idea that salvation or Christian spirituality is more of a mindset. It's something to be felt or thought about, but really has nothing to do with the physical realm, which would, of course, include our bodies. So the outworking of that mindset would either be, one, to suppress the body and its desires, to abuse the body, to deny the body, to view the body as something to be beat down and abandoned. On the other end, people would say, well, look, the body doesn't really matter anyway, so why not just do whatever you want with it? In the end, it's going to just perish. There's There's no point in suppressing your desires if ultimately... When we go to heaven someday, our bodies will just simply be left behind. Either end of the spectrum is really quite problematic. Now, you might be thinking, well, but, okay, but those are two extremes, right? I really want to write a word on this end of the chalkboard. It's just, it's just. Thank you. Thank you, wife. Let me see if I can get this one. Liberty. Is that right? No. Liber. Tear. Oh, this is. <laughs> I try so hard. Set to says. Okay, let's move on. Who cares? Who cares about Gnosticism, anyways? Here's the point you can go to either extreme. Of course, most of us say, well, no, we don't want extremes. Okay, I don't, I don't want to end up over here where I'm just sleeping around. Body doesn't matter. Sex doesn't matter. What really matters is the spiritual. What really matters is my feelings. And I don't want to end up over here where I'm just constantly trying to suppress my desires, trying to deny my body. And either one of those, you might say, well, okay, but surely someplace in the middle, right? Surely it's about balance. Okay, fine. Maybe. Maybe. I mean, you can, you can do whatever you want. It's your body. Paul offers something better. This is the point. The Corinthians and this very sort of platonic mindset are stuck in between these two extremes. And this is what they're debating. This is what they want Paul to weigh in on. And he essentially responds by saying, look, you're missing the point again. It's not even about either one of these extremes or any place in the middle. I have a better option for you. I want to suggest... You try marriage. Did I spell it right? (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Yes. (laughs) Marriage. Intimacy and sexuality in worship. Those of you who are married, have you ever thought about your relationship or more specifically, 
your sex within the context of your marriage as an act of worship. Have you ever thought about that? He says, do you not know, backing up just a little bit, he says at the end of chapter six, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have been given from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Sex is not the problem. Paul's just simply saying you're doing it wrong. You're thinking about it all wrong. Your body and your sexuality and your desire for intimacy are gifts from God, all features that in fact reflect the very nature of God himself. So sex and your sexuality is not the problem. The Corinthians, as I mentioned earlier, were well acquainted with the concept of sex and worship. When Paul says your bodies are temples made to be filled with the Holy Spirit, so use your bodies as a means to glorify God, they would have immediately thought of like, oh yeah, I get that. We have many temples in our city. And the patron goddess of Corinth was Aphrodite's, the god of love and sensuality. Hers was the temple at the top of the hill. Many Greek scholars estimate that there were up to a thousand temple prostitutes, male and female, one given time, working in that temple in that city. The Corinthians understood that if you wanted to worship, you go up the hill, you pay a price, and hire a body. You perform a sex act, and you call it worship to the goddess of sex, love, sensuality, Aphrodite's. Okay, now we don't call it a temple, we call it a men's club. We call it the strip joint. We call it the porn site. So we've sort of separated these concepts of our sexuality, our bodies, and worship. But the Corinthians, they totally got it. But God, instead, this is what Paul is suggesting, instead of paying a price to use the body of another, in a way that's utterly devoid of any actual intimacy or love in the name of quote-unquote worship, in hope uh, that the goddess of love might give you what we're all so desperately looking for. Instead of that, God pays the ultimate price in giving himself, his whole self, mind, body, soul, not in order to use us, but to free us, to bless us, to love us, to know us, to remain faithful to us, to welcome us home. Instead of hiring a body to use at a price and calling it worship, God gives himself, body and all. He pays the price, not to use us, but to free us, to love us, to give us dignity and hope. And he pays the price. What Paul's doing now is saying, remember all that business about the gospel, about God's faithfulness, about Jesus' sacrifice on the cross? Remember, all the, remember the first five chapters when I was emphasizing how this isn't about you? This isn't about how you think, what you feel, or what sort of spiritual power you think you've acquired. This is about God. This is about his faithfulness, his knowledge, his wisdom, his power, his goodness. And this is about us responding to all of that. What might that look like in terms of our sexuality? How might we live that out in our bodies? in our desires. Paul is saying that there's a way to escape just simply trying to balance our lives caught in between these two sort of heretical notions. He's saying there's a better way. Sex isn't the problem. You're just doing it wrong. And he casts a vision for marriage. When we covenant ourselves 
to a man or a woman and love them the way that God has loved us first, when we respond in love, having been loved by God himself, that reciprocation is what we call worship. It's what we are made for. I love this. It's, it, this is why in the, the 16th century common book of prayer, any Anglicans in here? Just me? Not really. I've, I've Anglican tendencies, I guess. The 16th century common book of prayer contains uh, wedding vows. Part of those wedding vows, when the man puts the ring on the woman's finger, he's to repeat these words and say, with my body, I thee worship. Isn't that profound? With my body, I thee worship. There's something about our bodies, about our desire to be known, about our longing for intimacy, and our need to worship, our nature to worship. All when we do it, the way God has done it towards us, it's a beautiful thing. It doesn't end in a suppression of desires. It doesn't end in rampant hedonism, which just destroys everything. It ends in something beautiful, life-giving, lasting, healthy, dignifying, something that actually reflects the very nature of God himself. This is why Paul writes in Romans 12.1, he says we're to um, give our bodies, give our bodies to God as a good and acceptable sacrifice for this is our spiritual act of worship. So what exactly does this look like? Let's, let's, let's break it down a little bit and, and get practical. Now if you're not married, you might want to jot a few notes down. This, this, could, this could help you get a vision for what you think we want. If you are married, you might want to think about how you've been approaching it and perhaps um, change the way you think about some things. What exactly does marriage as worship look like? This sort of reciprocation of God's sacrificial love. Number one, it's holistic. It's holistic. It's not just an emotional thing. It's not just a spiritual thing. It's not merely a contractual thing. It involves our whole being, including our bodies. Including our bodies. I can so vividly remember on our wedding night, um, we could hardly make it back to our hotel room. Such an exciting thing. And we go in the room, I'm, this is serious. <laughs> just give me this, if, as soon as I cross the line, just give me this. Already? Already? Okay, continue. This is my wife. We get back to the hotel room. I look at Shirley. I look at myself. I look back at Shirley. And I say those magical words, you're welcome. And she said, hallelujah, praise the Lord. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm making all that up. Oh, sorry. Sorry, totally crossed the line. Now, all of that totally happened in my mind. <laughs> our bodies, our bodies actually matter. Guys, now, look, we could, we could go, I could go off on a serious tangent now, and eventually we're going to have to. Eventually we're going to have to talk about, well, what does God actually think about my body and what I do with it? Because it's not just about how I feel. Okay, it's not just sort of, you know, what my tendencies are, or what my sort of hormones tell me, or it's my body actually matters. When I coveted myself, covenanted myself to my wife, I was giving her my whole body, my whole being, 
including my body itself. I'm meant to glorify God in sex, in marriage, in giving my body to my wife. That means my body matters. That means my genitalia matters. I'm to glorify God with the genitalia he's given me. I'm not trying to be funny. It's important to think through this. This is the point, and Paul's really making a bold assertion here. He's saying we give our bodies to our spouse. I no longer have authority over my own body. I've given it to my wife and vice versa. My physical body is significant and how I'm to glorify God with it and in it. My body matters and so does yours. Number two, what, is, what does marriage as worship look like? Number two, it's generous. Generous. There are no expectations. I had a, a couple over at the house earlier this week and we were talking about marriage. They've been married a few years and they were uh, recounting their, their, their first night of premarital counseling. I'm going to totally steal this idea. But they said that their, their pastors at the time, this was in another state, told them before you come to, to our, your first session of premarital counseling, make a list of all of the things that you're expecting to get out of your marriage. So they did. They had a long list. And they said, bring the list with you. So they did. And they sat down. And they said, okay, did you make your list? Made my list? Great. Okay, get it out. Okay, all excited to kind of share their brilliant you know, list. They made it. Say, okay, great. Um, so do you want us to read them off? No, no, no. We're going to burn them. We're going to burn them. Don't want to read them. Don't want to think about it. We're going to burn them. Super helpful premarital counseling. Let me tell you. Expectations will crush your spouse in marriage. Because we give ourselves wholly, entering into the covenant of marriage, that kind of worship, it's radically generous. God gave himself, all of himself, blood and all on the cross, not so that he could get something from us. He doesn't put us in debt. He frees us from it. He gives us his all with zero strings attached. Now once I'm his, no, no holds barred. He's my Lord, he's my king. To love him is to obey him because he's changed my heart. Gosh, when you've been transformed into a child of God, there is a desire that begins to consume an individual that compels you to want to obey God. It's like my little boy. who he just, He's utterly obsessed with just pleasing Papa. It's healthy. It's right. It's worship. <laughs> In the same way that I worship my Heavenly Father is a, a small, slight reflection of that between me and my son. Not so much my eight-year-old. He's kind of over it. <laughs> my four-year-old, he's still, he's still feeling it. It's radically generous. We give our all. When Jesus died on the cross, there was no guarantee that we would reciprocate. There was no guarantee that we would repent and put our trust in him and receive his love. There was no guarantee. He gave his all because that's just his nature, because he loves. When we reciprocate that kind of love in our relationships, specifically marriage, I don't know if there's a clear picture. This is why Paul refers to marriage as this profound mystery that actually gives us a snapshot of Jesus' relationship with us, the church itself. He calls it a mega mystery, profoundly mysterious. No strings attached. Which is great because if there's no holding back, if it's the ultimate act of generosity, it means we keep no secrets. We hold on to no shame. There's nothing to hide because I've given it all. You're welcome. Number three, it's vulnerable. It's high risk. Some of you might be thinking, there's no way. There's no way in heaven or in hell that I would ever give myself to another person like that. 
been there, done that, got abused, never, ever again. I will maintain control. Thank you very much. Mm, I get that. I absolutely get that. It's, it's arguably the riskiest thing you could ever do with your life to wholly entrust yourself to another mind, body, and soul with zero expectations. It's risky. It is risky. You could, it could go wrong. It could go terribly wrong. And just because if you're, a Christian, you're a Christian doesn't mean there's like some guarantee that it's, you're gonna live happily ever after. In Jesus Christ, absolutely. In marriage, anything goes. This is why we do well to, you know, I made a list of expectations, hopes before I got married. I wish I still had it. I can only remember like the top three. Number one, I said, here's my list, Jesus. I was 32. I was like, okay, enough's enough. This feels relatively superficial, but I don't care. Here's my list of demands. God, please, just enough. I am burning with desire here. And I said, number one, God, please give me a woman who loves you more than I do. That's, that's number one. I remember that. Someone that's going to like inspire me to run harder after you, Lord Jesus. Number two, um, please give me a woman who's smart. Because I don't care how pretty someone is. Um, if you can't connect with them like on a mental level as well, yeah, let's face it, we all get old. Right? Number three, uh, I said, yeah, phys physically attractive would be awesome. <laughs> I don't remember what the other seven were, but I pretty much nailed the top three, so <laughs> praise the Lord. Um, yeah, I don't know what that was all about, but that was good. Yeah. Okay, so Genesis 3.16 where all of this intimacy stuff breaks down. Okay, we were meant to live in relationship, intimate relationship with each other and God. That all goes terribly wrong. We rebel, we exert our will over God's, and it all breaks down. Genesis 3, God begins to pronounce curses. He says, now that this has happened, this is what's going to come next. He curses the serpent, the enemy, Satan, who lied and deceived the man and the woman. He doesn't curse the man or the woman. He curses the serpent, he curses the ground. And then he declares to the man and the woman, now this is, these, this is what's gonna happen because of your rebellion. He says to the woman, your, your desire will be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. Okay, that is a result of the fall. Male dominance over a woman is because of sin. That's brokenness. Sister, if you're terrified of relinquishing control and giving your body to another man, I don't blame you. If you had dated me before I became a Christian, before Jesus saved me, I would not blame you for feeling that way towards other men. If that makes any sense. Man, you have no right to rule over a woman who's entrusted herself wholly to you. Now, later on, we'll talk about the roles of genders within marriage and relationships and the church. We'll talk about the distinctions between male and female and how together we reflect something beautiful that is of the nature of God. But in marriage, at the outset, there is a mutual sharing there is a mutual submission. I'm giving my body to you and you're giving it to me. Man, you have no right to dominate the woman that God has entrusted to your loving care because that is a result of the fall, to dominate another person. So is it risky? Heck yeah. Is God's grace enough to see us through, to heal us, to set us free, to give us hope that there might be a way out? Absolutely, absolutely. Fourth and finally, what does this uh, worship in marriage look like, this reciprocation of God's sacrificial love look like in marriage? It's fulfilling. It's fulfilling. 
Isn't it interesting in verse five, he says, look, the only time you should separate is when you agree to set aside some time for prayer, maybe prayer and fasting, just to focus on God. Great, wonderful. But come back together so that Satan won't find some sort of opportunity to exploit your your physical desires, your sexual desires. Did you know that in life, the only way the enemy, Satan, can tempt you is by finding legitimate desires to exploit. You know that. All desire is from God. God is the author of desire. God desires. It's an interesting study. Do do a word search. Desire. Most of the desiring in scripture is done by God. God desires. And so our desires are all a reflection of who he is. Our longing for intimacy is a reflection of what he's like. The only time the enemy can tempt us, can derail us, can abuse us, is by exploiting those desires. So if there's an unfulfilled desire, I promise you, the enemy, Satan, will come along and be like, oh, I've got an answer for that. Oh, I can, I can sort you out there. And he offers us some sort of counterfeit means of fulfilling an otherwise legitimate desire. Now, to be sure, many of our desires are, are broken, twisted. I mean, I desire... I desire to watch pornography. Can I say that? Yep, it's true. I have desires every once in a while. I fight those desires. I fight those desires and I seek to have those desires fulfilled in the way God has intended them to be. They're an intimate relationship with my wife. The enemy would love to fulfill that desire for me through illegitimate means in ways that will end in ultimate death and brokenness, disappointment. Our marriages and our relationships are meant to be fulfilling. There are legitimate ways of having our desires fulfilled by God in Christ. I'm gonna close with a question, then we're gonna take communion and we'll even have a time to respond in prayer. Um, can I invite the band to come up, please? Here's the question. How fulfilled are you in your life? How fulfilled are you in your relationships? And By what means are you attempting to have unmet desires met in ways that aren't from God? Guys, I became a Christian when I was 24. Plenty of time to thoroughly explore either ends of this heretical spectrum here. Oh, I tried suppressing my desires. That so does not work out. I tried going crazy and just saying, forget it. This religious business is not for me. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna have a good old time. Oh, that so did not work out either. I tried to sort of like maintain some sort of balance in between. Well, maybe if I'm just like a little bit good and and not too bad, maybe I can somehow just kind of, I don't know, strike a deal. That's just exhausting. That's exhausting. God has a better way. It's oftentimes um, utterly counterintuitive. It, it, it challenges us to the core. It's fatal to the ego. It requires us to submit our will to God's. But it's good. 
just let me let me pause on that that thought that question how fulfilled are you in life as the band plays and sings leads us in a song of worship um, we're going to take communion and communion is a gosh it's a beautiful and, and very simple way to remember who God is and what he's done for us through his son Jesus Christ he gave his body he paid the price that we might experience life relationship with him intimacy ultimate fulfillment in a way that only he offers in a way that's sustainable in a way that leads to to greater and greater and greater lasting life and so we remember and we go to him we say Lord Jesus thank you thank you for spilling your blood thank you for laying down your body and we take the bread we dip it in the wine and we remember can we stand together Here's my, my parting advice. So this, this is what Paul says. We go into uh, the next little section there. He says, as a concession, he says, this is not a command from God. This is, this is Paul talking to you here. He says, it's not a bad thing if you're single. It's, it's not a bad thing. He says, in fact, like, I wish all of you had the gift. Apparently, Paul was, was a single man. He'd probably been married at some point in time. If he was an ordained Jewish rabbi, he definitely would have been married. But he was single. He was celibate. And he says, look, if you're single, if you're widowed, if it's, just, if it's not happened for you yet, it's not a bad thing. Embrace it. And I think that's important to remember. You might have a very, very strong desire for that intimacy. You might want to be married. I did. I wanted to be married, and I wanted to be a father. If it's not happened yet, perhaps God wants you to enjoy a very unique season of life. Can I just encourage you to embrace it? It might be super hard, probably is, unless you've got the gift. But trust God. Trust that in this, this season of your life that he might want you to experience a part of him that you'll never experience before. It's not so bad being single. That will make more sense if and when you're married someday. <laughs> life is grand, but it's all hard. It's all hard. And God is faithful. I love you guys. Have a great week. If you still need someone to pray for you, don't feel like you've got to run off. We've got plenty of time. Thank you, band.